0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to 1 John chapter 2. We will be reading this Lord's Day from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and on through chapter 3, verse 3. Hear now God's holy and inspired word, in the, starting from verse as I said, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, the Spirit moves as you will. Jesus promised to send the Spirit to lead us into all knowledge And this morning, in this glad hour, we ask you to keep that promise. Send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open my mouth so that I may not be ashamed to proclaim Christ and His Word. Open all of our hearts and ears so that we may hear and receive Christ as He speaks to us. And we pray this in His precious name. Amen. So our passage... This morning. It's a continuation and a reinforcement of the last section. Uh, Now, that was just two weeks ago. I'm sure you all remember it, Uh, but just as a a quick review, uh, the last section concluded in verse 27 with John saying, "'Abide in Him.'" John was speaking of uh, how we can know it is the last hour despite all these antichrists abounding all around. We can be sure that is the last hour, he says. Jesus Christ is indeed working in this world. His light is defeating darkness. His love is overcoming hate. His life is destroying death. And we can be sure of the validity of our faith because of the abiding and the anointing we have received. We have received the Spirit of Christ, who is working to make us like Jesus and teaching us His truth. Thus, John concludes... In verse 27, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is in no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, depending on which English translation of the Bible you prefer and use, uh, that statement, abide in him, it may sound like a command or it may sound like a statement about reality. Uh, the Greek can be translated either way. Personally, Personally, I think John is indicating what is true about you. I believe John is saying, just as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in Christ, or you reside in Christ. And that would explain why in our passage this morning, John seems to repeat himself. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in Christ this time it is a command. You already abide or reside in Christ. Now, John says, abide or remain in Christ. Now, that appeal, that exhortation, that's going to be John's focus from verse 28 all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. But John does something interesting in our passage this morning. He pauses his train of thought, so to speak, and exclaims, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, John isn't merely suggesting that we glance at the Father's love. No, this is another command. It's, look, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. And it is vital that we pause to behold the Father's love. And not only because it is crucial for John's larger argument, it's vital because his love is a feast for our souls. So, as John has commanded, we will obey. This morning, we will behold the Father's great love so that we may be confident and Christ-conformed children at His coming. We'll start by examining where our confidence should be placed, Second, we'll examine what it means to be called children of God, and then I'll define what I mean by Christ-conformed. So, before we rush into chapter 3 and, and marvel over the Father's love, we must follow John's train of thought, see what led up to that grand exclamation. In verse 28, "'And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence.'" And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So, the first thing we notice is that John wants us to have confidence when Jesus comes, his parousia. As we've stated before, we live in the time between the times, the already not yet. We live in the time between Pentecost and the parousia. And in this time, we know that Christ has inaugurated the final age of glory, but we do not yet see it fully manifest. And that's why, John says, we shouldn't be surprised at the abounding antichrists that have come. Many antichrists have come, but Jesus Christ is coming back. And Jesus will appear. And John wants us to have confidence when that time comes. That word, confidence, it is used in Greek to describe a free citizen's boldness when speaking to their king. It is fitting then that John uses the word parousia for Jesus' second coming. Parousia is a technical term for the arrival of a king, and in this case, it is the arrival of the great king, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, John says, abide in the coming one, Jesus Christ the righteous king, so that you may have confidence when he comes. John then describes what abiding in Him looks like. And we can think of it this way. What would it take? What would it take to stand before the righteous King with complete confidence? At the very least, it would require not being ashamed of Him during our lives now. Jesus, describing Himself as the Son of Man, taught in Mark 8.38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So abiding in Christ certainly carries a sense of not being ashamed of Christ, but it also carries with it an ethical orientation. As John has already said, In verse 17 of chapter 2, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So those, those who do not obey God's will, those who follow the desires of their flesh and eyes, they will be made to pass away. But those who do God's will, those who practice righteousness, they will abide forever. This is why John says in 2.29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that the coming king is righteous, you can be sure that when he returns, he will distinguish between those who practice righteousness and those who don't. And so, if abiding in Christ uh, means not being ashamed of Christ, and it means practicing righteousness, let me ask you. Who here has the confidence to stand before Jesus and tell him, I have never been ashamed of you? Can any of you honestly say to him when he comes, I have perfectly practiced righteousness? Can you say that you've never lied or stolen, taken advantage of someone? Have you never lost your temper? Have you never been disrespectful or short with someone? Because we need to be absolutely clear, the righteousness That this king is looking for is absolute perfection. In Matthew 5 20, Jesus himself is very clear that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The best rule keepers on earth were not righteous enough to enter the righteous king's domain. And it's not good enough to be just a little less sinful than the next guy. King Jesus requires perfection, righteousness that exceeds even the Pharisees. Do you have the confidence to stand before the righteous king on that day with only your righteousness? This is no small matter because if you are wrong, there are eternal and grave consequences. We read these Horroring words in Revelation 6, 15 through 17, that describes the coming of this king. It says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks: Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? From the high to the low, from the slave to the free, everyone who is not found practicing perfect righteousness will be judged. Adam and Eve, you might recall, hid themselves from God when he came in the cool of the day after they had sinned. But it will be far, far worse on the great day of wrath, because you will not be hiding in bushes and trees. You will be begging, begging to be crushed by the rocks rather than face the wrath of God. Who, who can stand before the great wrath of the Lamb? Because here's the truth of the matter. No one, no one can be righteous enough to have confidence when Christ appears. Even your best works will be shameful. You will shrink away from Jesus if that's all you have to offer. You cannot place your confidence in your righteousness. And I don't say that only for the unbelievers, but as a reminder for believers too, your confidence before God can never rest upon your works. They are not good enough. How then, how then can we have confidence, John? How then can we be sure that we abide and are abiding in Christ? John rightly tells us where to put our confidence when he says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If we are to stand before the righteous king with confidence, God must first do a work within us. In other words, our confidence is not in ourselves and our works, but in God and what he has done. New birth precedes new behavior. God's work precedes our works. And the works of the one who has been born of him They are qualitatively different than the works of one who has not been born of Him. John wants us to have confidence when Christ returns, and we must abide in Christ. And if we are to do that, we must be born of Him. And it's at this point, it's at this point John takes that holy pause, born of Him. It's so marvelous that John makes sure that we pause along with him to consider it. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What does John mean by children of God? In our Christianese, our Christian jargon, we use the language of born again and child of God so often, but do we really fathom the depths of this wondrous spiritual reality? Do we comprehend what great love the Father has given us by calling us and making us children of God? Even that phrase, what kind of love, suggests that the Father's love is otherworldly, something foreign to our everyday experience. Yet as we consider this new birth, this being born of Him, being called and made children of God, as we consider it, we behold the out-of-this-world, infinite, vast, and eternal love of the Father. The new birth presents for our viewing, for our beholding, the Father's great love. How? As we consider the new birth, we see that it is the loving, unmerited, and all-encompassing act of God. Let's start by remembering what I had said in passing only moments ago, New birth precedes new behavior. God's work precedes our works. Jesus had said that we need righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness, however, is the fruit of being born of God. And interestingly, uh, the most clear teaching on the new birth comes from a conversation Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are naturally born into this world, born of the flesh. We are born with the desires of the flesh, 1 John 2.16. And as Paul will say, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8.7. But we must be born of the Spirit if we are to practice righteousness. First John, uh, in, in John 3.21, Jesus confirms this when he says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We can only carry out true works in God. We must be born of the Spirit and abide in Christ if we are to practice righteousness at all. We can't do anything righteous on our own, which means we can do nothing righteous to merit being born of the Spirit. Righteousness is a fruit of the Spirit's work. So the question is, how do we come to be born again? The answer to that is that it is the unmerited and loving action of God. In John 3 eight, Jesus said, "'The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit.'" just as the wind blows where it wishes, so too does the Spirit of God. The wind is not at our beck and call. We are not in control of the wind, and we are certainly not in control of God. Our new birth, then, depends solely on the will of God. But unlike the wind, which is impersonal and uncaring, the Spirit of God operates according to the common and loving will of the Father. We read in that famous passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the Father's love that led him to give up his Son to be our atonement. Notice that it was not the atonement that made God love us. Romans 5 eight God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father's love is the fount from which our entire redemption springs. Love drove the Father to send the Son to accomplish our redemption. And love drives the Father to send the Holy Spirit to apply our redemption. Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is nothing we can do to merit the new birth. Just as we contributed nothing to our earthly, fleshly births, we contribute nothing to our spiritual rebirth. To be clear, it is not our faith, it was not our repentance, or even our confession that led to us being born again. Instead, it was the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, His work of new birth that led to faith and repentance. Now, this may sound unfamiliar or sound foreign to some of you, but it most thoroughly exemplifies the Father's great otherworldly foreign love. More importantly, it is thoroughly biblical. Jesus' words in John three, three through eight teach it. First Corinthians twelve three says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And we can pause and consider Paul's words in Ephesians two. He says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. He says, we were living out the desires of the flesh and we were children of wrath. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Unless there is any confusion, Paul continues in verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We were children of wrath. And God, because of His great love, made us children of God. All the benefits of Christ's redemption flow from our being born again, and the Holy Spirit performs that work in us because of the out-of-this-world infinite, vast, and eternal love of the Father. That alone is enough to humble us and cry out with John, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. I mean, who are we that God should be mindful of us? We, the dust of the earth, rebellious sinners, haters of life and light, who are we that we should be called children of God? More more than that, who are we to receive such an unmerited gift of not only being called a child of God, but actually being made into his children? God has reached down into the depths of our souls and supernaturally recreated us, meeting every moral and spiritual need, radically and pervasively changing us so that we are, in effect, new creation. Why? Why would God do that? Love. Because of his great love, love for his own glory, and love for people still born in their sins. What wondrous, amazing love that the Father has shown us, that he has given us, that we should be called children of God. Now, if we take a step back, keep the Father's great love in view, we can now understand better how we can have confidence in Christ's coming. John's command to abide or remain in Christ is a matter of not being ashamed of Christ. That is true. It is also a matter of practicing righteousness. That is true. But on a deeper, spiritual level, it is a matter of living the reality of what is true about you. You are a child of God. You have been reborn. Unlike those abounding antichrists who have departed from the fellowship, have denied Christ and tried to live according to their own rules of life, we are the children of God who enjoy fellowship with Him and with each other, our family, and who confess and believe in Jesus Christ. And it is Christ's righteousness that we uphold before Him at His kingly return. And even while we live here on earth, We can take great joy in practicing righteousness because we are abundantly thankful for the great salvation we have received. And we have received all of these benefits of salvation because of the Father's great love and sending the Holy Spirit to make us children of God. That is our confidence. Praise God for His amazing love. Now, I said in the beginning that I wanted us to behold the Father's great love so that we may be confident in Christ-conformed children at His coming. We've discussed what it means to be confident, where we are to place our confidence, and we've discussed what it means to be children of God. But I also said that this work of new birth is all-encompassing. It's not just unmerited and loving, it's all-encompassing. Which leads us to our next point, what does it mean, what do I mean when I say we are to be Christ-conformed? As children of God, we are reborn so that we can be like Jesus. But, as we've already discussed, our righteousness falls far short of the righteousness of Christ. We have acted ashamed of Him. We have not perfectly kept His commands. So, John, after taking that holy pause to behold the Father's love, reflects on how that love assures us that we are already like Christ and will one day perfectly be like Christ. That's what I mean by Christ conformed. John starts by noting how we are treated similarly to how Jesus was treated while He was here on earth. In the second half of 1 John 3.1, we read that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Jesus, while on earth, was not yet glorified. Even after his resurrection, he had not yet ascended to the Father and entered into his glory. And we share that in common with Jesus because while we're here on earth, we are not yet glorified. But that will occur when Jesus returns. We will be made perfect and we will receive new glorified spiritual bodies, but that time is not yet. And it is little wonder then that unbelievers do not recognize us for what we are. John told us, I'm sorry, Jesus told us to expect all this when he said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John doesn't want you doubting the reality of your new birth. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That is the in- intended goal of the Father's great love. So once again, we're, we're beholding the Father's great love. The intended goal of His love is that we would be like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. By grace, we are children of God now, but we are like Jesus as he was during his earthly ministry. We know, however, that when that, in that day comes, when we behold our glorified Savior, then we will be made just like him. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that moment when you will see the righteous king face to face and instead of shrinking back from him, shrinking away from him, you will embrace him as an older brother because you have been conformed to his image. Can you imagine the joy of that moment? I love how Psalm 1715 puts it. It says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Behold the great love of the Father, brothers and sisters. His love is the fount from which sprung your new birth, your salvation. Now drink deeply from his love. It will sustain you until that precious day when you behold Jesus, see him as he is, high and lifted up, and become like him, satisfied forever in his likeness. As we draw to a close, you may be asking yourself, how can I have this precious gift? How can I experience the Father's love and know that I have received it? Maybe you've never believed. Maybe you do believe, but you struggle in your belief. John has an answer for you. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hope in him. Believe in Jesus. Earlier, we read in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We spoke of being born of the Spirit, but what is this water? Water. I take this water to be a reference to the Spirit's work, specifically of His cleansing work. Uh, It is the fulfillment of the words spoken by Ezekiel in chapter 36, when he says, "'I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you.'" Now, if you have been born of the Holy Spirit, you have already been made pure. You have already been made to look like Jesus. But as we live our lives, we don't always act like Jesus. We sin and we soil ourselves, which is why we cannot look to ourselves if we want to be confident at His return. Our works, even as redeemed Christians, are not good enough to warrant confidence at His return. But everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies themselves as Jesus is pure. For you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus, the righteous, is not only a king. He's not only your older brother. He is your advocate and your propitiation, 1 John 2, 1 through 2. That means Jesus came to take away our sins and to offer himself up as a way to remove God's wrath. And to be our propitiation, Jesus had to be pure. Now, as God, Jesus was pure but since he was also man, Jesus kept the law. Since he was man and had to be pure, he was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He participated in ceremonial washings. All this he did, even though he had no sins or impurities. He kept himself pure so that he could remove your impurities." My impurities. He was righteous so that he can make us righteous. He died the final death and rose again so that you might experience the resurrection and the life everlasting spent being satisfied in his likeness. And he lives even now as your advocate, praying and working on your behalf so that when you sin, he stands ready to forgive you and purify you again so that you will be ready when you finally see him face to face. And all this, remember, was not to procure God's love. Jesus didn't do this to make God love you, to make the Father love you. It was the Father's great love that drove Christ to come. Behold the Father's great love. Put your hope in Christ. There is your assurance that you are a child of God. There is your confidence that you will be Christ-conformed when he comes. Let us pray. Father in heaven, strengthen us. Strengthen us with your spirit so that Christ may dwell in all our hearts, so that we may have the strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, height, and depth of your great love for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.